There I was, bright-eyed and ruddy, a first year at university, when my Latin professor addressed the class and said something that I will never forget. There are no soft seas in Latin. This was my vindication, because I have always detested soft seas, when the letter C makes the S sound. The language of Latin uses only hard C's when they make the K sound. So, your Caesar salad is actually a Caesar salad, if you want to be proper. But the English adulterates the Latin and, voila, Caesar. Therefore, because of my personal bias and formal instruction, sometimes you will hear me pronounce the city Caesarea Philippi, and sometimes Caesarea Philippi. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and you're listening to Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man, to which Jesus referred here, is himself. Do you ever refer to yourself in the third person? Better yet, do you ever ask your mates what other people say about you? This is exactly what Jesus asked his companions. Hey, what is everyone saying about me? Is it good or bad? Do people like me? Do they understand what we're doing? Or are they just smiling at me through their disdain? You've talked to other people about me. What are they saying? So the disciples answered Jesus. Some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. With that answer in mind, Jesus then pressed the matter and sought to figure out what the disciples themselves thought about him. What did they say about Jesus when they were alone? So Jesus brought the question to them. Okay, so others say that I'm John, Elijah, or whoever. Now, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for what we all think but hesitate to verbalize, boldly responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two weeks ago, in Living Water, we talked about the Messiah, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. Although those exact words were not featured in the exchange that we just heard, Messiah stealthily appeared twice. Right at the end, we heard Peter tell Jesus, You are the Christ. Christ is the English rendition of the Greek word Christos, which is itself the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, or Messiah. So what Peter said was, quite literally, You are the Messiah. But he continued on, saying, You are the Son of the living God. Today, we often place God and the Messiah hand in hand, perhaps even attributing some fungibility to them. But the Messiah never equated to God. If you remember from our discussion two weeks ago, the Messiah simply is the Anointed One, 
that is, the king sent by God to be Israel's greatest king, better than even David, to unite Israel under God, raise its status, and establish it as a blessing to the rest of the world. But the Messiah did not need to be God. In fact, that was never the assumption. The idea of the Messiah equating to God is a consequence of the Christian tradition arising after Jesus in response to realizations about him. But at the time of Jesus and Peter, and they too being Jews of the ancient tradition, Peter could have recognized Jesus as Messiah without calling him the Son of the living God. With that second assertion, Peter took it ten steps farther and recognized Jesus as more than the king longed for, more than the liberator of Israel heralded by the prophets, more than a new Moses or a new King David, but also God incarnate, the living God made flesh. And now we ask ourselves, why would Peter call Jesus the son of the living God when Jesus, in his own words, referred to himself as the son of man? While that expression, son of man, does not explain Peter's revelation, it is, however, the second stealthy nod to Messiah. Because Daniel, in the seventh chapter of the book that bears his name, had a prophetic vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel's prophecy referred to the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. Jesus, when he repeatedly referred to himself as the Son of Man, knowingly invoked Daniel's messianic prophecy. And in doing so, he additionally reinforced the fact that he, Jesus, was a human being, that is, a son of man, a fact that became exceedingly important only after people realized that he was indeed God also. That God-man duality that Peter realized, to which he said, You are the Christ and the Son of the living God. That idea of the incarnate Jesus being both holy God and holy man was, and is, paramount for the church, in its nascent days, as well as in modern times. And Jesus answered Peter, saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bardiona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my congregation, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. With his reply to Peter, Jesus expressed that Peter had realized a truth that was beyond what he ought to have been able to realize. Peter saw a truth that was beyond the capability of human eyes. 
It was not Peter's insight or understanding, but God's gift to Peter, in that he recognized Jesus as not only the Messiah, but as the Son of the one true living God. Here, we need to briefly aside and look at Peter's name, because it wasn't always his name. When Jesus called the disciple, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, Bardiona in Aramaic, and you shall be called Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word for stone or rock. So the disciple's birth name was Simon, but Jesus renamed him Cephas, meaning rock. However, in Greek, the word for rock is Petros, which is translated into English as Peter. So Simon in Hebrew, Cephas in Aramaic, Petros in Greek, Peter in English. What is the point of all this? Here, and elsewhere in the passage, there is a play on words. The Gospel of Matthew, wherein the story is found, was written in Greek, and it said, and I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my congregation. You are the rock, and on this rock I will build my new gathering of followers, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And speaking of nuances of the original language, if you are following along in the Bible, it likely renders the expression gates of hell, which has a better reference point for most modern readers. But for you minority who have studied the classics or Greek mythology, you might recall that Hades is the Greek underworld, the land of the dead where all souls go when their bodies die. Provided, of course, that you have a single coin with which to pay Charon to ferry you across the river. While some people equate Hades and the Christian hell, they too are quite different. Nevertheless, the detail is important not because of fidelity toward Greek mythology, but because Jesus was referring to a specific place, not in the underworld, but here on earth. I think that most people view the gates of hell in this passage as an allusion to evil, the Satan, and the like. And while there may be aspects of things like this in Jesus' choice of words, the more immediate meaning is much more potent. Caesarea Philippi was in Israel, but it was a Hellenistic city, meaning that it was Greek, not Jewish. The city, which you can visit today, is nested into the cliffs of the Golan Heights, near the border of modern-day Lebanon and Israel. Since it was Greek and, therefore, worshipped Greek gods, they carved temples into the sides of the cliff, and the largest temple was dedicated to Pan, the Greek god of chaos and the English word pandemonium. The face of the cliffside Temple of Pan is situated at the mouth of a giant cave. In the back of that cave is a spring, which is actually one of the sources of the Jordan River. Those dark subterranean waters, there, deep within the Temple of Pan, were the gates of Hades, a physical place where offerings were made to pagan deities. Now put yourself in the scene. Jesus and his disciples travel to the northern border of Israel, to a Hellenistic city where pagan worship abounds. Perhaps there are offerings that day, or a festival, or cult worship. 
Just maybe they find themselves in the midst of a heathen haven for idolatry, debauchery, profligacy, and all manner of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In that place, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say that I am? Then, Petros the Rock makes the bold assertion that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Peter says that Jesus is the king destined to restore the people of Israel and rid them of the wicked ways of the Gentiles who have usurped their God-promised land. Restore it from people like the pan-worshippers. What's more, Jesus is the Son of the Lord Almighty God. Not a dead God or fake God like Pan and these other deities around them. Rather, Jesus is the Son of the living God, who does not reside in a cave or temple on the side of the cliff, but who permeates the entire universe and is the one true living God. In response, Jesus tells Peter that he has spoken truth, something strong and durable like a rock, a foundation on which the movement of Jesus can stand strong. With a foundation built upon that truth, and upon faith like that of Peter the Rock, even the gates of Hades cannot prevail. The pagan worship around them, the wickedness, the chaos of Pan, everything happening in Caesarea Philippi, none of that can prevail against the church that Jesus has come to implement. Jesus then tells Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The effect of these words is, Peter, you have the truth. God has given you something special. You understand that I am the king who will establish the messianic kingdom. And you know that I am also the son of the living God. The truth that you have is the key to it all. You have the way for people to become a part of my new movement, and when the time is right, it will be up to you to share it, or not to. You, and the truth that God has given you, are the rock and the foundation upon which everything that I am doing now will stand, and it will be your responsibility to see that it grows, to invite others into what we are doing here, that they might experience the kingdom of heaven. But take heed, because if you shy away from this responsibility, if you, the rock, crumble, then the blessing of God's kingdom will become lost for others. Altogether now, the entirety of Matthew 16, 13-19 reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Bardiona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In light of all that we have been discussing about Jesus as Messiah and his messianic kingdom, we must now ask ourselves a difficult question. Was Jesus really the Messiah as he claimed to be, and did he establish his messianic kingdom? That two-part question is a big one, and it is one that people have been discussing for nearly 2,000 years. The answer lies greatly in perspective. Let us for a moment consider the Messiah, the anointed one of God, prophesied as a king who would rise up, liberate Israel from its oppressors, and restore the nation to the Lord and to its rightful place as a light and blessing to all the world. At the time of Jesus, Rome was the oppressor of Israel. And did Jesus lead the nation to overthrow Rome? No. No, in fact, Jesus was brutally executed by the Romans. After his death, Israel did not rise above the nations, and no river of living water flowed from the temple. In fact, Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. All this in mind, I understand when the Jews who have stayed true to Judaism ask, how could Jesus possibly have been the Messiah? That's an alarmingly fair, yet sobering question, because indeed Jesus did not do any of the things that the Messiah was supposed to. Or so it easily seems. Because in any well-constructed argument, one must first identify the assumptions, and here, one such assumption is cleverly hidden. We assume and take as fact that Rome was the enemy. While it certainly was not the friend of Israel, what if we assume that Rome was not the real enemy? What if the true enemy of Israel was not Rome, just as it wasn't Egypt, or Philistine, or Babylon, or Persia, or any of those? Because empires come and go, but the problems remain. So maybe the oppression and the exile, the crucifixion and the taxes, the death and the hatred, all of it, maybe these are just symptoms of the disease. The real enemy is not Rome, it is us. But it is not every part of our being, only those parts that go against God. The real enemy is not Rome, it is sin. Originally, sin might have entered the world in Eden's garden, when fruit was eaten, when a choice was made to choose our own way over God's. But sin continued to enter, and keeps entering the world with each individual who chooses to ignore God's way. Sin is the enemy that Jesus the Messiah overcame. Sin leads to death, and yet Jesus defeated death and conquered the grave when he rose from the dead. In doing so, he liberated not only the people of Israel, but all mankind. The Bible says that for freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, 
stand firm, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus has set us free from sin and death, so don't let yourself be weighed down by it. It's all about perspective. When they were at Caesarea Philippi, even Peter still thought that Jesus was going to be a worldly messiah and establish a political reign. Believing that narrative, it makes sense why the disciples fled in fear and panic when Jesus was executed, because they didn't understand the mission of Jesus. They didn't understand the true purpose of the Messiah. But after Jesus rose from the dead, they began to understand. Jesus had not come to conquer Rome, because conquering Rome ignores and does not address the heart of the issue. Rome is not the real enemy. Sin is. At the heart of the issue is our hearts. In the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, God does not live in Beitamik Dash, because the place for God is not within walls of stone. It is within the hearts of those who believe in Jesus and have faith in God. Hence, the messianic kingdom that Jesus founded does not have a river flowing out from Beit Hamikdash in Jerusalem. In the real messianic kingdom, wherein God's dwelling place is in the hearts of believers, living water flows out of those who worship the Son of the living God, from believer to believer and throughout the whole world. Because institutions of the world are only a symptom of the disease whose root causes our persistence in choosing our way over God's, because our problem is not Rome, but sin. Jesus came to conquer the sin, not the symptom. His messianic kingdom looks different than Peter thought it would, than everyone thought it would, and yet it creates the change that a worldly kingdom never could. Our oppressors still exist. At times they have been called Babylon and Rome, and in this age they go by different names. Their persistence can cause us to doubt the presence of the messianic kingdom. And this is why it is exceedingly important that those who acknowledge Jesus share that kingdom and give life to the world. To do so is to adduce and to establish proof that Jesus was who he said he was and that his promises are sure. It is not only Peter who is given the keys to heaven. They are given to everyone who has accepted the truth that he did, that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God. As we go forth today, we should ponder the unexpected. The Messiah brought peace in an unexpected way, personal peace. He also brought salvation in an unexpected way, personal salvation. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. Don't be afraid to share this podcast with the people you know. They, and I, would greatly appreciate it. Bring your scones and orange juice for breakfast with Jesus, our next episode, which will be out in two weeks. As always, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and show your support with a positive review. Doing so will help our visibility and make it possible for Stories of Symmetry to be seen by more people. Finally, always appreciated, but never assumed, if you are feeling financially motivated to help offset our overhead or to show your appreciation, 
you can donate at storiesofsymmetry.com give. To everyone, I bid you go with God, go in peace.